Thank you, Lauren. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I hold all of you in such high esteem because my uh, contact with physician assistants has been just so immensely positive. We've got such a great group at Geisinger, uh, scattered throughout the Geisinger Health System. Uh, and Lauren's the, 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 the top of the line in terms of just being brilliant and great patient care. Uh, so, you know, it's possible that maybe we just lucked out at Geisinger, but I think the more likely thing is that you're, you're highly trained and professional, and the, the fact that you're even here at a meeting like this uh, speaks well for, for how highly you value your education. Um, so, it, it's a real honor for me to be here. I, I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, yeah, I chose atopic dermatitis to talk about uh, because I think unless you just don't do any medical dermatology, if your entire practice is cosmetic or totally surgical, uh, this is something that you just simply have to know about. I, I think it's accentuated if your practice is pediatrics, but I think across the age spectrums, you just simply have to understand pediatric dermatology. So it's very, very, uh, you have to understand atopic dermatitis. It, so it, it, it's very important in terms of numbers. And for as long as I've been doing this, it's still a condition that kind of befuddles me. Uh, and just don't seem like I have a absolute perfect handle on this. So I think probably if I've been making a living at this for 20 plus years, uh, it's likely that you're a little bit confused as to how to handle these patients as well. So I think in terms of being both common as well as something that's challenging, I, th I think it's a good topic. So, you know, in, in January in particular, out in the waiting room, this little guy is sitting next to this guy who's across the hall from this one, who's, uh, you know, waiting to come in with this one, and so forth and so on. And, you know, granted, and this is, this is little Howie, this is me as, a, as an infant, so you can see those bright red cheeks. You know, I must have been an atopic kid, and I've got a little bit of asthma here now, and perhaps that's a, a big part of my interest in this. So, you know, what does the name even mean? Atopy means without a place or almost without a home, a, a term that was coined about 90 years or so ago. And, you know, it, it kind of fits. It's just sort of an entity that's kind of hard to put into a box necessarily. And, you know, if you had a, a, like a, a medical student or a PA student who's kind of tagging along with you and they say, you keep talking about atopic dermatitis, what is this entity? You know, and you think, geez, how on earth would I even define this? So, you know, you look in books and this is kind of like a, a, a definition that you see makes absolutely no sense at all. I mean, you're no more informed with a definition like that, you know, a complex genotypic diathesis. Um, so, you know, this is a definition that I think I, I can kind of live with, but even this is a little bit on the wordy side. But if you pull out the key words on this, it's a chronic condition. It has, a, in almost all cases, an early age of onset. And its characteristic feature is pruritus. In general, if you're seeing a rash and it doesn't itch, it's probably not atopic dermatitis. So those are kind of like the key features, I think, in, in the definition. If you want to simplify it down, this is sort of like my dumbed-down uh, uh, version of a definition of atopic dermatitis, a chronic itchy rash in a young child that doesn't happen to be scabies. It's almost like everything else is atopic dermatitis, and perhaps to kind of expand it a little bit, that follows a characteristic distribution that we'll go over, but all of you, I'm sure, recognize um, it, based on age, and it's associated more often than not with either a personal or family history of atopy. Now, we're kind of defining the term 
with the term. So we've got to go a little bit further and define what atopy is, but that's a tendency towards genetic dermatitis, towards hives, seasonal or environmental allergies, reactive airway disease, and multiple positive prick tests. And you, you see, that's the only part of the definition that we've talked about so far that has even remotely anything to do with a laboratory study. And in point of fact, this is not a diagnosis you're going to make with a lot of studies. It's something you're going to make with your intuition, your questioning, and your physical exam. So, you know, the characteristic distribution. Infants, very, very facial. Um, so usually the bright red chafed cheeks that are a lot of times oozing, characteristically with a little bit of perioral sparing, but generalized as well. So the infants, the really young children you see, they're, they're a lot of times right from the top of the head to the tip of their toes, kind of with the exception of, you know, you see a lot of atopic kids come in that they're an absolute mess and you take their diaper off and it's like the only area in their body that's clear and that'll kind of come back to when we talk about wet wrap treatment of, of what the diaper does there. So generalized. And then as they get a little bit older, two, three, four years of age, flexural sign of wrist, brachial fossa, popliteal fossa like is illustrated here. And then your adult patients or teenage patients, a lot of children with atopy turn into young adults or adults with either eyelid dermatitis or kind of the bane of our existence, hand dermatitis. So granted, a lot of times those are people that you're thinking about allergic contact dermatitis and patch testing and that sort of thing. But sort of the natural history of childhood dermatitis is to turn into an adult with either eyelid or hand dermatitis. And there are all sorts of criteria that, that have been put forward. These are kind of uh, old from John Hannafin. Uh, major criteria, you should have these features of the pruritus. Again, if it doesn't itch, I wouldn't say 100% that it can't be atopic dermatitis, but you've got to be skeptical. If it doesn't itch, it's probably not atopic derm. The typical morphology that we just went through, chronic or chronically relapsing. Unlike poison ivy dermatitis, this is not an acute thing. Somewhere along the line, it had to be acute. It had to start someplace, but this is a chronic relapsing condition and the personal or the family history of atopy as we just discussed. And then all these minor features that are in your handout that I'm not gonna go over every single last one, but I'll show you pictures of things that are typical associations that are kind of like little pieces to the puzzle that when they all come together, paint a really nice picture of typical atopic dermatitis. A little bit shorter definition. Um, and this is, these are the types of things that you fit people into clinical trials and that sort of thing, where you have to define the entity. But you have to have an itchy skin disease. And then three of these following, uh, flexural eczema, asthma or rhinitis, dry skin in the past year, onset before 12 years of age, visible, visible flexural dermatitis. So again, your brain is not necessarily going through this type of process of kind of clicking off criteria. Um, you know, I think probably the, the best definition I've heard, uh, Joe Morelli, who's at, at Colorado, spoke at our, our department on atopic dermatitis once, and he said, if you walk in the room and you think it's atopic dermatitis, it is. And that's about as simple as it gets. But I think overall, this is kind of a gestalt that you, you develop after seeing a number of kids with atopic dermatitis. This is the ichthyosis vulgaris, these, these hyperlinear palms. Uh, that you see in so many kids that have atopic dermatitis. Now, not everybody with atopic dermatitis has ichthyosis vulgaris, and not everybody with ichthyosis vulgaris has atopic dermatitis, only about 50%. Um, but it's a pretty common association of dry skin along with inflamed skin. And looking at the palms of young kids because they look like old men and old ladies is a really nice place, of, uh, way, a way of making this diagnosis, particularly in this time of year where their skin is pretty well hydrated. Um, and a, this might be skin that you would even see in July. 
you know, really, really dry skin as if it was the middle of the winter, ichthyosis vulgaris, and again, dry eczema craculae here. All of you recognize this as keratosis pilaris. Again, not everybody with KP has eczema, not everybody with eczema has KP, um, but that's a pretty common association with ichthyosis vulgaris and probably inherited as, as a filagrin abnormality. Keratosis pilaris there. Again, the, fa the typical facial distribution of bright red chafed cheeks, sometimes oozing with a little perioral sparing. Uh, the hyperlinearity of the lower eyelids, the Denny Morgan lines, sometimes with a little bit of darkness in the lower eyelids, what's sometimes called the allergic shiners that you can see a little bit better here in this adult. Pityriasis alba. Again, not everybody with pityriasis alba has overt atopic dermatitis, but they probably carry that genetic tendency. And this time of year, if, if you practice in a Caucasian population, this is, tends to be where you see uh, most of this as they're starting to get a little bit of sun and right around the cheekbone is the classic area for P. alba. Uh, sweaty sock feet or juvenile plantar dermatitis, a lot of these are ichthyosis vulgaris children as well. You know, the sweaty sock feet. Why isn't this tinea? You look between the toes, normal as can be. That's usually a good differentiating feature there. If somebody's got terrible foot dermatitis and between the toes is absolutely normal, that's usually a good indication that it's dermatitis versus uh, tinea. Uh, if they're real young, usually your knee jerk is that it's dermatitis rather than tinea. Lichenification, you know, just an indication that somebody's been scratching a lot. This is on the back of the neck of an adult. Uh, on the wrist here, fairly common location to be kind of going away at the skin. Again, eczema is the itch that rashes. Uh, so primarily itch and then scratching from their parago nodules or picker's papules and somebody covered with them here. Uh, tendency towards secondary infections. This is impetigo. Now this is kind of run-of-the-mill impetigo that any kid could get. And this is sort of the time of year that you'll start to see a lot of staph impetigo. But this is more typical of somebody with eczema, kind of chronic eczematized skin that then starts to ooze and crust. So this is kind of the picture of impetigo or secondary staph infection on top of, of atopic dermatitis. Mollusca, uh, I mean, all kids get mollusca at some point or another, but they're more common and they're more severe in children with atopic dermatitis. So all of you recognize the little belly button of, of mollusca contagiosa. But this is more the, the picture that you'll get with an atopic on top of chronically eczematized, sometimes lichenified skin with a little bit more subtle bumps there. Eczema herpeticum or, or primary herpes infections, a lot more severe in atopic dermatitis and, and frequently leading to admission to the hospital. What's called white dermatographism. So you stroke the skin and instead of getting that erythematous flare like you do in usual dermatographism, you just get sort of the edema there. That's not something that I check, but it's a curious finding when you see somebody that's been scratching a lot and they're an atopic and they just sort of have that white edema, as opposed to true dermatographism, somebody that, that's usually got chronic uh, urticaria with the erythematous flare with it. So, you know, usually this is not something that making the diagnosis is the struggle. Again, it's sort of an intuitive diagnosis that if you've seen enough kids with atopy, you start to put together. But as specialists in dermatology, you're expected to have a knowledge level that's a bit above the primary care doctors taking care of these kids. And, and you do have to sort of think a little bit outside the box in terms of what else could it be. So these are the sorts of things that go through my mind, at least peripherally, as to what else 
might this child have? And, you know, realistically, the differential diagnosis probably looks more like this. You know, in general, it's scabies or it's atopic dermatitis, and then all those other things are kind of little boxes down below. So this child comes in. He's been itchy, rashy for several weeks. Um, is it atopic dermatitis or is it scabies? I don't know that looking at this picture, I would want to make a, a diagnosis there. In general, looking at the palms and the soles is your best bet, particularly on infants. They're not scratching so deeply the way that older children and adults do that they ruin all their burrows. And a lot of times, if you've got good magnification, and at all your ages, probably you can even see it without your, uh, your magnifying glass, but for me, it's the reading glasses, good light, magnifying glass, you can actually see the little, little black tip at the end of the burrow, which is, is the mite. You can actually grossly see it with just a little bit of magnification or a dermatoscope. And, you know, if in doubt, it's definitely worth scraping it and, and confirming the diagnosis. You know, it's not the only thing, and this is probably next in line. I, I suspect you look at that picture and immediately you've put together, this is somebody that's nickel allergic, and it's either the snap of their pants or their belt buckle that they're reacting to there. So some of these get labeled as, as chronic genetic dermatitis, atopic dermatitis, when in fact it's allergic contact dermatitis. And sometimes there's clues that they react to jewelry or their ears are, are real bad and so forth. But that's, that's on the uh, differential diagnosis list as well. And then, you know, again, you, you think about psoriasis, sebderm, uh, genodermatoses, particularly Netherton syndrome, immune deficiency, and so forth. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the speed bump that you should take as you're progressing on treatment and you're starting to contemplate systemic therapy for atopic dermatitis, there should be just a little bit of a bump in the road that says, what am I missing before I'm going to go on to that? That's when you refer back to that differential diagnosis and think, maybe there's something else here. Maybe there's something wrong. In terms of epidemiology, um, I, the, the incidence sort of varies all over the place. Um, but it, it's roughly about... 20 or so percent of individuals carry some genetic tendency towards atopic dermatitis. The worst areas of the world for whatever region, Nigeria, the United Kingdom, Finland, Sweden, Ireland, and New Zealand. Uh, again, it's a fairly wide range, but somewhere in the order of about 15 to 20 percent. Um, risk factors, uh, high socioeconomic status, higher family education, smaller family size, urban environment, family history, and perhaps if you're older, females. And the incidence is increasing, but it does seem to hit kind of like a peak at about 20%, even in the countries where it's the most common. Uh, why does it happen you know, in developed, more uh, socioeconomically high standard countries? Uh, there's thought about excessive hygiene, that we're not exposing the body to enough antigens. Does it have to do with a higher level of vaccination in these populations, diet alterations, a lot more immigration? into populations where, you know, genetically somebody has grown up in one environment or one country sort of becomes like uh, immune, if you will, to the antigens in that country and then moves to a um, uh, urban population or that sort of thing. So these are all things that have been tossed around as theories. Um, one of the important factors in terms of epidemiology is that a good 70 to 90 percent of individuals have manifest atopy by the time they're five years of age. So it's not never that a teenager will first manifest atopic dermatitis. But if you've got a 16-year-old in the clinic and they've never had trouble with their skin, it should leave you a bit skeptical 
that you're making a diagnosis of atopic dermatitis and, and maybe make you think a little bit more about allergic contact dermatitis and some other things as part of the differential diagnosis. And about 40% maintain some tendency towards dermatitis into their adult years. Again, they're your adults with chronic hand dermatitis or eyelid dermatitis. In terms of pathophysiology, this, this is not one of the more fulfilling aspects of talking about atopic dermatitis, I think, because even though some major discoveries have been made in the past few years, I don't think even yet we have a really good sort of molecular understanding of what leads to atopic dermatitis. One of the traditional thoughts is that it must be some cell of bone marrow origin, probably T cells that are part of the process, because there have been studies of people that get bone marrow transplants who had been atopic dermatitis and they lose their atopic diathesis, or just the opposite. You get a donor who is atopic and, and take on that atopic diathesis. But you know, the real landmark uh, in terms of pathogenesis of atopy was the, the discovery of filagrin as the genetic abnormality in uh, ichthyosis vulgaris, which accounts for a significant number of atopics as well. And particularly your population of European ancestry that has atopic dermatitis, a lot of those will have this filagrin gene abnormality. So filagrin is filament aggregating protein. If it's mutated, barrier function suffers as a result. So our intuition all along was that atopic dermatitis was an abnormality of barrier function. Now there's some credence to that. Is that the only thing, though? I mean, it, it, you don't have to take care of many atopic uh, kids to realize the incredible diversity. Somebody real mild that responds beautifully to almost no treatment at all. Somebody incredibly severe that just doesn't respond to anything. Some with allergies, some without allergies, some with family history, some without family history, and so forth and so on. If they come in all permutations and combinations. How can there be one genetic abnormality that leads to this whole thing? And the, the answer is it probably isn't. So this is, uh, was in Nature and Genetics this past year, looking at genome-wide associations uh, on a number of people, over 3,000 people that had atopic dermatitis, comparing them with people who don't have atopic dermatitis, and actually found eight susceptibility loci that were consistent with atopic dermatitis. So you've got filagrin and another genetic abnormality that has to do with epidermal barrier function. Uh, you've got others that have to do with adaptive immunity, another that's in the uh, interleukin-1 family of uh, signaling, uh, again, a, more of an immune uh, response abnormality, uh, negative regulation of apoptosis and the inflammatory response, regulatory T cells. So, you know, various aspects of the inflammatory response are abnormal in given individuals with atopic dermatitis. This is sort of a family of abnormalities with a somewhat common phenotype rather than one absolute genetic abnormality. Make this even more complicated, you could have an abnormality of what you would consider your inflammatory response. In this case, IL-25 and IL-22, but the downstream effect is the effect on filagrin and barrier function. So the primary abnormality is an interleukin, but the phenotypic effect is on barrier function. So, you know, it's complex, and I think in another generation will have a much better understanding of this, but I doubt if I'll be practicing during that period of time. Now, allergies, where do they fit into all this? This is one of those aspects of a talk on atopic dermatitis that I wish I didn't even have to talk about because you, you do tend to be a little bit more confused afterwards than you were before. Um, but um, it's fairly common in the general atopic population to have associated allergies. 
And you know, the numbers are really, really variable. It, it might be as high as 70% of atopic individuals have allergies. Now, where the leap of faith comes, or the sort of the disjoint with this, is how many of these allergies actually have to do with why the person gets their dermatitis. So having an allergy doesn't necessarily mean that that allergy is what gives you the dermatitis. So it, it gets a little confusing. How many people who have an allergy, is it actually contributing to their skin with mild atopic dermatitis? It's not many, probably is in the order of 2%. Mild, maybe as much as 15%. Really severe atopic dermatitis. Allergies might actually be contributing to their dermatitis maybe as many as 30% of the time. The big group of them are cow's milk, egg whites and egg yolks, peanuts, soy, and maybe wheat on the tail end there. If you only eliminated those, even without doing any testing whatsoever, you've eliminated probably about 90 to 95% of your allergies in your atopic population. So I, I'll talk to parents, and we'll talk to, the, uh, to this effect a little bit as we talk about treatment. Um, even without doing any testing, if you just eliminate that sort of handful of things, you've basically eliminated allergies as, as part of the mix. Now, the difficulty is in actually doing it. Peanuts are relatively easy with real young children, but try to avoid egg whites and egg yolks, and that is a real challenge. Uh, and we'll talk about formula alterations and that sort of thing, and that gets pricey and difficult as well. Kind of complicating this mix as well is, is that you can actually get IgE-based autoimmunity. So you're not only producing IgEs to foreign antigens, but you can get IgG, IgE antibodies to self-antigens. Anyway, that's pathogenesis. I, that I never find is one of the more fulfilling aspects of this whole talk. Uh, I, I think someday we'll have a better handle on this. But for right now, to me, that's kind of a confused, muddled mess. So we'll get on to really kind of what the, the meat of this talk is, is treatment. This is, the, these quotes are taken from a high school paper. Uh, from, this is Kim, who uh, was the daughter of one of our, is the daughter of one of our endocrinologists, and she's long into her 30s now. She actually was one of our first camp counselors, a junior counselor. She was about 16 or 17 at the time. But her dad shared with me this paper um, she wrote in, in high school. Um, I vividly remember one morning, every step I took, my skin would crack somewhere new, and every, and every step a, a new tear would form. Uh, and I was a five-year-old kid no one, no, who no other children would include. No one would be my partner. No one would ever hold Kim's cracked hand. So it kind of speaks to, uh, you know, kind of both the, the physical as well as the emotional aspects that go along with atopic dermatitis. And, and in many respects, this is a family disease. Uh, the child is affected, but the whole family uh, is sort of falls under the difficulties with, with atopic dermatitis. So it has a very, very profound effect on a person's life. So as a basic overview, you know, how do we handle it? You know, fairly quickly you've made the diagnosis, and you know, you need to go through a physical exam, but to me, after a while, all these kids start to look a little bit alike. So the big part of the visit is what are you gonna do about it? So I, I break this down into, number one, you know, education, which the corollary to that is, you know, education is how do you avoid triggers or flares? Uh, using emollients, Anti-inflammatory agents, for the most part, that means topical steroids. Antihistamines and antibiotics, which are not the big part of taking care of atopy. Uh, kind of our ace in the hole, or our thing that we hold in our back pocket is ultraviolet light. And then hopefully, a point that you never get to is systemic immunosuppressive agents. 
So for, for education, I find it really helpful to have handouts and information. I've got a handout that I've made up myself. And having a computerized medical record, it's, it's really easy to just sort of blow it into the, the discharge information that a patient gets at the end of their visit. And it refers them to a few websites. And we've, we've pirated handouts from a number of websites. The National Eczema Association is a really terrific spot to refer people to. Really reliable, good information on the cutting edge of research and uh, what's new. They, they provide some nice family conferences that some of my patients have been to. And they used to have a nice printed pamphlet that was uh, pharmaceutical sponsored, this power over eczema. Uh, now you can download it as a PDF or uh, can just simply copy it off of their website. And that's what we do, is we just copy it uh, off the website and give that to families. So that's a nice source of information. Um, the uh, Rady Children's Hospital has is at least what I think is the only freestanding eczema center, a building that is dedicated to research and care for uh, atopic children. And this is Larry Eichenfeld, who, who uh, heads the program out of San Diego. And their website is spectacular. A lot of great handouts. Again, you can download PDFs on this. A lot of videos. Uh, so if you're trying to teach people how to do bleach baths and wet wraps and that sort of thing, it actually has a, a, a small video that you can have. And I've, I've brought this up on the computer in the office and had people watch these right while I'm sitting with them. Uh, so that's a really nice source of good, reliable information as well. You, you probably have seen this little book. Uh, Fujisawa sponsored this years ago, so it, it was sort of available free as a little paperback book. So I've, I've got a few copies still left over there. But you can download this, again, as a PDF and get the whole thing free. Uh, so if people are interested in it, it's just kind of like a little storybook of a, a child with eczema. Um, but, you know, in many respects, the, the amount that a family needs to learn with atopic dermatitis is just overwhelming. So I try to provide them with resources, and I try, and I try to get my residents to do this when they're working with me, of leave them with at least a couple of bullet points, at least something digestible to leave the visit with that you can understand and remember. And these are the bullet points that I like to hit. You know, one is this is a genetic condition that you're not treating strep throat nor an ear infection. This is not going to be 10 days of antibiotics or cream or whatever, and you're cured. You're still the same genetic individual afterwards as you were before when you came in. So no more are you going to cure this as get somebody with blue eyes and say that they want brown eyes and, and somehow make that happen. So, you know, it's a different paradigm. This is a condition you learn to live with and treat, but it's not something that you cure. It's part of your genetic makeup. It can be nicely controlled, though, so it's not all bad news. I mean, most everybody we can get under some level of control. Not cured, but controlled. It's really, really unlikely that there's a magic bullet out there. Now, it's not impossible. You do hear stories about the child that does absolutely nothing except change their formula, and it's all gone. I mean, it's great when that happens, but I don't want to try to give an expectation to a parent that there's a magic bullet out there that you do one thing, get rid of the dog, control dust, change formula, uh, never have eggs or whatever, and everything is just wiped out. Uh, so the first thing a lot of parents will say to me when they walk in the room is, I'm not interested in treating this, I want to get at the base root cause, which you know, makes sense. I mean, if you're treating virtually anything, that's a thought process that makes sense. It's just that it's something we hardly ever achieve with this entity. And it will probably get better with time. So for most kids, as two, three years of, 
of age turns into four, five, six, and seven, most kids will grow out of their skin condition. Now, they might grow into their allergies, and they might grow into asthma, and all sorts of other things might occur. But the dermatitis, for most individuals, at least gets better, many times completely goes away. So those are kind of the four bullet points that I want to at least leave as a take-home message. So the resident that goes in and sees the patient ahead of me, hopefully has already done this, and then I'll reinforce it. And then they kind of leave with a lot of information on how to care for atopic skin and so forth that they can digest and then gets reinforced as part of their second visit. For foods, if I can get in and out of the, the, the office and never have talked about food allergies, then I, I am a happy person, but that doesn't always happen. So if it's brought up, you know, there really is no great test for this. There's an awful lot of false positive, particularly with RAS testing. Scratch testing is probably better. Um, it, it's hard to reliably test this outside of hospitalizing somebody with total kind of food removal and then reintroduction in kind of a placebo-controlled uh, fashion. A lot of uh, restrictive diets are nutritionally unsound, and there certainly are case reports of people that uh, present with severe protein calorie malnutrition because of really restrictive diets. And again, you can kind of summarize the food allergies, even without any testing. You've got about 90% of them if you do milk, egg, peanut, soy, and you could add wheat to the mix as well. It's, it's actually doing it, it's staying away from those allergens, that's the hard thing. And this foodallergy.org is, is a relatively good website that I'll sometimes refer people to if they're looking for uh, advice on, on allergies. I'll quote this, this study, this is starting to get a little bit aged now, it's almost 10 years old, uh, but this was John Hannafin's review of guidelines for care of atopic dermatitis. And what a lot of us have taken as somewhat gospel in terms of their conclusions. And the quote on this is, there's no consistent finding regarding the role of dietary restriction in young children with atopic dermatitis. So I wouldn't say there's no role for it, but it's, it's not, in my mind, the biggest part of taking care of their skin. Um, dust is really difficult to control. And again, while it might help rhinoconjunctivitis and those aspects of their disease, I'm not sure that it has a huge effect on their dermatitis. Um, but you can remove carpets in the bedrooms and put down linoleum or hardwood, cover the mattress and the pillow, vacuum frequently. Uh, if you've got Venetian blinds or any kind of blinds, you can remove them and curtains and such that tend to hang on to dust. Trying to do this in the real world is really difficult, though. I discourage people from spending $5,000 on a filter or that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of conflicting results. Again, the quote from that same article, patients who have concurrent asthma and or concurrent rhinoconjunctivitis might benefit from dust mite reduction, but there's no intervention effective for most patients with atopic dermatitis. So if, if you're looking for a huge effect on their skin part of it, their dermatitis probably is not gonna happen. I might think about this a little bit more for someone that is exclusively bad facial dermatitis that suggests aero allergens, but uh, probably not going to be a big part of it. And, you know, while reading the whole consensus paper on allergies and atopic dermatitis is beyond what most any of you want to do, there are a couple of articles that have kind of summarized the findings. Uh, so the National uh, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases kind of coordinated uh, professionals from a lot of different institutions and specialties 
to kind of try to get some guidelines of what to do with allergies in the setting of atopic dermatitis. And they, they convened this expert panel that communicated in person as well as over email and so forth to kind of finally come up with some recommendations and guidelines. And I'm summarizing these to some extent. But there's a few kind of bullet points that I think, and this is all in your handout, so you don't have to write this down necessarily or, or memorize it, but a few key points that I think are important in terms of dealing with allergies in, in atopic dermatitis. First off, sensitization to a food is not the same as being allergic to it. In other words, having a high IgE level means you're sensitized to milk, dust, pollen, or whatever. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily clinically react to it. So one doesn't necessarily equal the other. Sensitization is sort of a laboratory study. Um, reacting to it is a clinical manifestation. Risk factors for the development of food allergies are family history of atopy or personal history of atopic dermatitis, no big surprise there. The severity of a food reaction can't be predicted by the previous reaction. And this probably has mostly to, to do with if it was fairly mild before, it doesn't necessarily mean it will continue to be mild. But the, you know, probably the bigger take home thing here is you can't use the titer of IgE antibodies or the size of the wheel on allergy testing, on scratch testing, to predict that it's going to be bad. Big, huge wheel on the back doesn't necessarily correlate with a real bad reaction. This is kind of interesting. It's 50 to 90 percent, so at least half, probably more, of patients or parents that report an allergy actually don't have an allergy to that food. Uh, the use of hydrolyzed formulas, not soy here, hydrolyzed formulas should be considered for infants at risk of food allergy. But you have to balance this with, these are formulas that are really expensive and they smell and taste absolutely awful. Um, so, if, you know, for somebody with a high suspicion of food allergies, it might be something to consider. But again, that's a balance of cost and, and taste. Um, introduction of solid foods should not be delayed beyond four to six months and paradoxically, delaying the onset of introduction of foods might actually enhance the, uh, the probability of food allergies. Not very intuitive, but it's the case nonetheless. Uh, children less than five years of age with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis should be considered for food allergies to milk, egg, peanut, wheat, and soy if they have persistent atopic dermatitis. And this is where I tend to think about it the most, um, in spite of good therapy. So you're doing all the right things things aren't going well, that's where I might start getting an allergist involved with this. And individuals without any documented allergies or proven allergies, you shouldn't use food avoidance as the way that you're treating their atopic dermatitis. So, Anyway, those, those are kind of the take-home messages here. Where do I get an allergist involved? If respiratory symptoms or rhinoconjunctivitis is a big part of their presenting symptomatology, the history strongly suggests some cause and effect with an allergen. Uh, and, and more often than not, it's because the parents are just so fixated on allergies that it's the only way to kind of sort of uh, bring that to some conclusion and we'll get the allergists involved in that case. And really primarily, you're doing all the right things, you're doing the right treatments, you're convinced of uh, compliance, and you're just not getting good results. Now, th this is part of the educational part of this as well. And this is kind of the paradox. You can see I have a pair of ducks there. So the paradox is, uh, you know, uh, and your parents will tell you this. Uh, I went to one doctor and he said I, I should only be washing once a week. 
Then I went to another doctor and he said I should be washing twice a day, which is correct. Well, you know, in fact, actually both of them are fairly correct. Um, bathing can be like licking your chapped lips. The more you lick them, the more they dry out. Um, so in that respect, bathing less. But it, it is a nice way of hydrating the skin, particularly if you get a moisturizers on right afterwards. And a lot of the information on bathing, and again, this is in your handout, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. A lot of the information on bathing is just sort of like common sense and not always based on the best evidence-based evidence or, or recommendations. Uh, but anyway, you know, tubbing twice a day is okay. Usually tubbing is better than showers, but you know, either way, um, kind of tepid water, warm, not real hot. Uh, you know, you want to stay in long enough to hydrate, but you don't want to come out a prune. Try to avoid anything that's abrasive, and that makes sense. No kid with atopic dermatitis is going to let you take a loofah sponge to them one way or the other. It is okay to use bath oils, or bath oils. Robathol is one product that I've recommended to people, but you don't let that replace your moisturizer. You still need to do your moisturizer later on. Um, mild soaps, um, you know, not to, I don't want to throw a lot of brand names around, but Dove Unscented, Oil of Olay, Kimmy are kind of soaps that we've, we've had good success with and are very inexpensive. Rinse thoroughly, pat dry, and then get your moisturizer or your prescription cream on right away. And that's really the key to bathing, is that the moisturizers go on very, very quickly afterwards, even on soaking wet skin, the kind of soak and smear technique. Now, emollients are always going to be a big part of of atopic treatment. So with many of the things that I'll be suggesting for treatment, you might try this, you might try that, or whatever. It's inconceivable that someone's going to come to your clinic for atopic dermatitis and you're not going to suggest emollients. Uh, you know, with what we know about pathogenesis at, at this point in time of atopic dermatitis, this is a big, big part. It's the base of the pyramid of atopic treatment. Uh, apply them often, five, six, seven times in a day would be great, although no, no one with a family is going to be capable of doing that. Always apply after being in a, a swimming pool, bath, tub, shower, or whatever. Ointments in creams generally are going to be better than lotions. In other words, if you scoop it, it's probably better than squirting it. Um, Petrolatum is, is about as inexpensive as you could imagine. Well, some people use Crisco and you know things like that. To me, the product that you use is really not the key. This is quantity, not quality. So when you get something that feels good on the skin, you just stick with it. So for one person, it's Eucerin. Somebody else tries Eucerin and they hate it. You know, for another person, it's Cetaphil. Another person tries Cetaphil and they hate it. You know, it's just it's a matter of taste and cost because you're going to be using a lot of it. So the cheapest thing at Walmart is fantastic as long as it feels good on the skin. Again, it's, it's quantity, not quality in this case. You know, Mimics and Atopoclear and some of the other uh, kind of quote, moisturize, prescription moisturizers. I haven't really quite figured out where to use these. They went through the FDA as devices. Their cost has kind of sort of pushed them out of the market. I, I just haven't quite figured out where to use products like this yet. Tend not to get covered and, and their, their cost just makes them impractical. Um, then the mainstay of treatment for anybody with atopic dermatitis is gonna be anti-inflammatory agents. Usually this means a topical steroid. Uh, there are some botanicals that have some anti-inflammatory effect. Um, uh, sunflower seed oil is an example there of something where you combine an emollient with something with perhaps some anti-inflammatory effect. But for the most part, when we're talking about anti-inflammatories, it's, it's a topical steroid that we're referring to there. And there's the non-steroid anti-inflammatory agents, permicrolemus and, and tecrolemus. 
So again, it's steroids are usually the mainstay of treatment. Usually you're using low to mid potencies, and there's a bunch of them out there. Uh, so again, to me, the product that you're using is really not the key. If you're in the low to mid potency range, you're gonna be okay. Personally, I just write for a ton of triamcinolone. It's on the cheap list at Walmart. Even somebody without a prescription plan can get it easily. It's really rare that it's not on formulary with whatever health plan you're dealing with. So it's probably the most common atopic prescription that I write is just triamcinolone 0.1% cream, usually an 80 gram tube, sometimes for older kids, a pound jar at a time. Uh, Ointment I'd love to use, a lot of kids fight it. If they fight it, it's not gonna go on. So cream is sort of a, a, a uh, compromise there. If you're using it on the scalp, sometimes a solution is nice, but a solution is going to be rich in alcohol. You put it on somebody's scalp that's been really digging at it and it's going to sting like crazy. African skin, usually an ointment feels better on the scalp. So that's a little bit of a paradox that if you're used to taking care of Caucasian skin that you might not be aware of. But when you're treating the scalp on African skin, usually it, it feels better if it's in an ointment base. And you gotta prescribe enough. I don't know how many kids I come in where mother says, you know, I was prescribed triamcinolone, it's just not working. I gotta figure out exactly why. And then, you know, they've got a 15 gram tube of it, you know, for an entire body. You know, it's no wonder it's not working. So I think for this audience, this is not something that is, is a, a real revelation. But you gotta prescribe enough to get the job done. Again, an 80 gram tube of triamcinolone is probably my most common prescription, but to write for a pound is not that uncommon. Uh, adding wet wrap therapy is really, really helpful, and that's usually second line because it's really time consuming and difficult for parents. Um, but the, the process is come out of the tub, thick coat of triamcinolone or whatever, uh, then you take pajamas that are moist the way they feel when they come out of the spin cycle of your washing machine. So not really soaking wet, just damp. Uh, and you can accomplish that by the kids in the tub, you put the pajamas in the tub, you wring them out, you throw them over the curtain rod, let them kind of drip dry while the child is taking the tub and then they're ready to go afterwards. Uh, and then, you know, another set of pajamas, sweatshirt, sweatpants, a sauna suit or something like that over the top and then you just send them to bed. And the results are spectacular, but it's labor intensive and the kids tend to fight it a bit. Um, but that's kind of a nice ace in the hole to throw in as sort of your second line. And then systemic steroids, but you have to be aware of this. I mean, they're a quick fix and they do get kids better. And I'll tend to use this for somebody, the, the child is just so out of control that they fight everything that's put on the skin. So you've probably had that experience that the mom said, I can't put the cream on. I mean, they, they just run away as soon as the tub comes out. And that's regardless of the preparation that you use. So sometimes settling somebody like that down with prednisone, then getting your creams going from there is really helpful. But you have to realize that there's a quick fix. They're gonna go right back. They're gonna turn back into a pumpkin again as soon as they, the prednisone is over. And, and it's not the long-term solution. And you can get yourself into kind of a seductive kind of process here with the parents. Because once they know there's an easy way out, it can be hard to stop them from wanting prednisone. So you just have to be careful with that. I wouldn't say never use prednisone, but it has to be used very judiciously. So this is somebody inpatient, back in the days when we would admit somebody to the hospital for wet wrap therapy. And this is just way too complex for parents to do. But again, we, we have this protocol that I can type out as a smart set on our computerized medical record, and it's just all out there for the parents to take home with them. But basically, damp pajamas, or steroid cream, damp pajamas, dry pajamas, off to bed, and the results are really, really nice. Um, We've been using these TubaGrip or TubaFast, actually doesn't have quite the springiness to it. So this is a commercial product that's really inexpensive. 
Uh, so you might do this um, on some of your patients with venous stasis who aren't capable of getting stockings on. That's where we use it the most, and that's why we have it in the clinic, uh, the tuba grip. Uh, but it really is wonderful for wet wraps as well. So you do one slip-on of the tuba grip that's wet. So steroid cream, wet tuba grip or tuba fast, and then another layer over the top. And you can kind of get the extremities trunk. You can actually even cut out eye holes and mouth hole and make a mask out of this for somebody with bad facial dermatitis. So that's something we've had some success with, and it's a little bit easier for parents, and these can be washed and reused. And they make these garments as well. Now, this is a little bit more expensive, and I'm perfectly satisfied with moist pajamas or whatever. But you can see the seams are very smooth, and the, the clothing is, is very soft and silky. So these are things that parents can purchase that you use as your wet wrap uh, first layer. And they go on the skin really nicely. A little bit more expensive. And th this is just one place where you can get these online. It's all in your handout. So, you know, most kids, you're just gonna intermittently going to need a topical steroid. So you settle them down, and then they use it as they need it. Uh, and they, they probably will never need anything else. And that might be 50, 60% of your population. Now, it isn't for me, unfortunately. I wish that was the case. But um, so, I mean, those are pretty easy to treat. Um, but there are going to be ones that are more difficult. Every time they stop, it comes back, or they don't respond real well. Uh, and as you know, there can be problems with long-term use of topical steroids. You know, you can thin the skin out. You can get... Uh, striae, uh, uh, stretch marks, uh, telangiectasia, perioral dermatitis when used on the face uh, can cause hirsutism. And you know, if you're using it over big, big surface areas, you can get a systemic steroid effect with HP axis suppression. So there are some things that can go along with steroid use that aren't so great. So the cyclosporin sort of family of things are anti-inflammatory without steroid. Now cyclosporin doesn't penetrate well in the skin, so you can't really make a cream of topical cyclosporin, but sort of chemically related uh, permicrolemus and tacrolemus, uh, commercial protopic and elodil, are things that can kind of fill the gap as non-steroid anti-inflammatory agents. Now they cost a fortune, they tend to sting when they're on inflamed skin, I think their anti-inflammatory effect is a good deal weaker than the mid-potency topical steroids. There are some downsides to these creams, but they do kind of fill a gap. They have a, a niche that, that has them sort of fit in. Uh, you know, I think they're safe. I mean, despite the theoretic risk of uh, uh, skin cancers with sun exposure and some of the monkey data with lymphoma and such, I really think that there's good data supporting that they're safe and they're reasonably effective. Systemic absorption is pretty low, but if you're using it on a huge surface area on highly inflamed skin, uh, there have been reports on children with Netherton syndrome that are erythrodermic that actually will absorb uh, systemically large amounts of, of uh, permicrolemus in particular, tecrolemus in particular. Um, and, and they're, ex they're expensive. I mean, they might be in the order of a brand name steroid. So you might be in the ballpark in comparison there. But compared to the generics of the things that we tend to use, uh, desonide, aclometasone, triamcinolone, and so forth, they're way, way, way more expensive. Uh, the black box warning, you know, that that went on years and years and years ago. It's made our lives miserable. It hasn't changed my prescribing practices, but it means I have to spend another minute kind of explaining that before I write a prescription. Uh, but a lot of people have used these, um, apparently, safety, safely. So my own thoughts, you know, triamcinolone is a great way to settle somebody down or substitute in your favorite mid-potency topical steroids. I think that works the best on inflamed, out-of-control skin. You can settle down the steroids or with the steroids, and then 
you know, either intermittent use or fairly topical or fairly common regimen for me after that is Friday, Saturday, Sunday with a topical steroid, Monday through Thursday with your moisturizer. You could probably do that forever. Send somebody off from kindergarten to college with that regimen and probably never cause any side effects on the skin. Um, but once you've settled it down, it's not a bad regimen to use pomicrolemus or tacrolemus, say weekdays, topical steroid on weekends, would be an example of something that I might use for underarms, face, uh, diaper area where I don't want to get atrophy and, and side effects from the steroids. Uh, and my own practice, or prescribing practices, have not really been altered by the black box warning. Now, antihistamines. You know, that. It, it, you see these poor families come in and they've got bags under their eyes and they're stressed out. It's obvious they've been getting like one hour of sleep every night. And you know, the dictum with an atopic child is, you know, if, if I don't sleep, nobody sleeps. And in fact, that's, that's probably the case. And that's probably the biggest benefit of antihistamines. 99.9% .9 of the effect is they make you sleepy and if you're sleepy, you go to sleep and very, very little effect on, on the itch. So eczema is not a histamine-mediated process the way hives are. So very little evidence that a non-sedating antihistamine, uh, Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra, unless you've got uh, allergies along with it, is going to help. But diphenhydramine or hydroxazine at about one milligram per kilogram at nighttime can be real helpful for some individuals, but again, the big effect is sedation, not that you're really helping a great deal with the itch. So again, this is from uh, the reviews of antihistamines. Uh, you know, it's about a decade old, but I think it stands true even now, um, that antihistamines just don't play a big role in the itch of atopic dermatitis. Now, antibiotics. <clears throat> it's really common that eczema-prone skin gets infected on top of the eczema. Generally, you get infected because you have bad skin, not that you have bad skin because you're infected, but the two of them play together. Uh, and usually this is a clinical diagnosis. They, like the picture that I showed at the, uh, the beginning of the talk, oozing and juicy eczema lesions, those are usually infected. You're gonna culture staph off of most everybody. So having positive staph culture, it, to me, is not that helpful. You don't need that to be able to determine whether they're infected or not. That's your clinical impression. Getting a culture on a child once is probably worth doing to at least know whether they're growing methicillin-sensitive or methicillin-resistant staph. So I'll usually do that much. And generally, I'll treat about seven days with cephalexin. Um, there are alternatives of topical therapy. Mupiracin is something that you can throw in. If it's a repetitive problem, I'll do mupiracin to the nares, usually five to seven days out of each month. Uh, adding bleach baths to the tub has become very popular. And in fact, there's some decent evidence that adding bleach baths to the tub of atopic kids, even in the absence of overt infections, is really very helpful. So the, the formula for that is two teaspoons per gallon. Very few of us fill up a tub and know how many gallons are in it. So a full tub, about a half to a full cup of bleach to a full adult-sized tub scaled down for a child. And you know, there are actually people that make IgE antibodies to staph toxin. So they're actually, if you will, allergic to staph toxin. Those are people that seem to respond really, really rapidly and well to um, antibiotic therapy. And you know, the, our ace in the hole, what we carry in our back pocket is ultraviolet light. And I found this really, really helpful. And I've had kids 
uh, 10, 11, 12 months go into the light box. Now in that case, you know, the mom's got to go in with the child dressed and kind of spin them around like a rotisserie in the box, but it definitely can be done. Um, certainly easier with older children. And the results are usually very, very good. And this is a really nice, safe way of treating atopic dermatitis for the child that you're starting to contemplate systemic therapy. Um, this time of year, if you can avoid the heat, and that's the unfortunate thing, but if you can avoid the heat, like being in a swimming pool, being outdoors in a bathing suit is a really nice way of taking care of it and getting the benefits of ultraviolet light. Um, tanning beds are not real helpful. They're mostly UVA and there's not a lot of anti-inflammatory effect, but there's a little bit of UVB mixed in in a desperate situation might actually suggest that an atopic child go to a tanning bed if that's the only alternative I've got and I'm starting to think about methotrexate, cyclosporine, and those sorts of things. But narrowband UVB is kind of the standard with that. And there are other things that you'll read about. And I, I, to me, these are things that are probably on the fringe, but massage therapy, hypno hypnotherapy, biofeedback, anything that kind of reduces the emotional overlay that goes along with this. Tar is not very well accepted by most kids with atopic dermatitis. It really smells bad. Um, Chinese herbal therapy. Uh, and then, you know, the systemic agents. And I really hate to do this, but at any given time, I probably have a dozen kids on some immunosuppressive agent, cyclosporin, methotrexate, azathioprine. We all have our favorites. Methotrexate is mine. Um, but before you do that, you know, you have to stop and think. You know, our, first off, has the family been compliant with what I'm prescribing? Is all this just non-compliant? Uh, have I done a good enough exam to make sure there isn't some genodermatosis or anything to suggest uh, immunosuppression or some other thing going on? Uh, Graft-versus-host disease, usually that's where I'll think about getting a biopsy. And I'll start a lab workup uh, looking at nutritional deficiencies and immune status, mostly. And uh, this is too small for you to read, but what this highlights to me is it's just a smart phrase that I've made up that's the assessment and plan of my note that I can just throw in very quickly that reminds me of all the things that I'm going to check or think about at least prior to getting somebody on systemic therapy. So I'm going to think about patch testing. I'm going to think about biopsy. I'm going to get them to an allergist, and I'm going to get the, the lab work. And I might not actually do all these things, and I'll alter the note accordingly, but at least I'm not relying on my memory at that point, which gets worse by the year. So typical first visit, to kind of bring this to a conclusion. Education, which is usually in handouts, but I'll at least get the bullet points of the things I want them to, to take home. Um, Bath daily, emollients, over and over and over again. Uh, the, their uh, prescription cream after that. Usually it's triamcinolone, but it doesn't have to be that. Yeah, you might have your own favorite. Hydroxyzine at bedtime if sleep is a problem. I might consider cephalexin if I'm considering secondary infection. And then usually I'll get them back in three to four weeks. And, you know, they start off, even if they're not doing a great job, they deserve a pat in the back for coming back. And so, you know, the first part is you're doing a great job. Uh, may increase the steroid at that point. I might uh, uh, throw in fluosininide on really difficult areas, particularly acral areas. Then maintenance therapy, which is usually use the cream when you need it, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, use the prescription cream and moisturizers in between. Uh, and that might be where I'd throw in one of the uh, immune response modifiers. And then give me a call or we'll set follow-up uh, at a, a point in time. Um, now this is where you come in, because the PA that unfortunately just left uh, me a little bit ago, uh, her husband uh, took a job down in North Carolina and she had the poor judgment to actually 
go with him rather than staying with me. Um, but this was her role uh, as my PA where she would actually be scheduled with a large amount of time and would go through that checklist of things that are in your handout, which was very thorough to make sure that all the questions that patients have, that first visit is such a blitz, it's the second visit that a lot of these questions come out. And I just go through a very thorough checklist which is listed here, and just one by one. What are you doing for bathing habits? What are you using for emollients? What are you, you know, foods and, and reactions? And all the stuff that parents want to talk about. And sometimes you blow through it quick, and sometimes it's, it's uh, more involved. But it requires time, and it takes some advanced planning to get these on the schedule with enough time. Um, so I was supposed to finish with a few pearls, so I, I will finish with these. Um, Start your, your atopic dermatitis treatment with consistent use of a topical steroid, generally 10 to 14 days. Again, triamcinolone is my favorite. Even if it clears a bit sooner, 10 to 14 days, you're going to get them better first and then save the challenge of keeping them better for your second visit. Save antihistamines for people who aren't sleeping well. The big effect of that is sedation, very little effect on itch. Uh, bleach baths are wonderful for secondary infection. Uh, and there's some evidence that they will work even in those who don't have a lot of secondary infections. Wet wraps are a tremendous ace in the hole, and they can be done fairly easily with the tuba grip or some of these purchased garments. Um, remember to address some of the emotional needs, and that might be that second visit where, you know, it's not only how is the child doing, but how are you doing? Uh, and lastly, think about camp discovery. Uh, this is a condition that, that not only affects you physically but emotionally. And when kids get beyond the childhood age, 8, 9, 10, 11, it can be very isolating. They might not know another person in their entire school district that has eczema like them. Uh, and this is a great opportunity for them to meet other people. And that is it. Thank you.